Spurgeon grew up in a Christian home. His father and his grandfather were both ministers. But it's in this tiny chapel when he's by himself on a side street in a small town that Spurgeon becomes absolutely convicted and he gives his life to Christ. I take my text and make a beeline to the cross. That is one of the famous sayings from a preacher many of us admire, C.H. Spurgeon. Except there's just one problem with that quote, and that is that Spurgeon probably never actually said that. One of the fascinating things I learned from reading a book, a new book by IVP academic titled Tethered to the Cross, The Life and Preaching of C.H. Spurgeon. And I'm here today on Monday Morning Preacher. I'm Matt Woodley with Preaching Today, and I'm here with the author of that book, Dr. Thomas Breimeyer. Thomas, it's great to have you on the podcast. It's great to be here, Matt. So Thomas is he lectures in systematic theology and history at Spurgeon's College in London. He's an American living in London, and he's actually a Cleveland Browns fan. So uh, how's the season going for you so far? Well, you know, it's actually looking better than usual. So like any Browns fan, we live in hope. <laughs> as, as every Christian should. So, Thomas, you've written this great book, which I read, and I just got so much out of it as a preacher. It was just a lot of fascinating insights. And I, I actually, as I was reading the book, I had to change the ending of the sermon I was working on for that week. So you gave me some extra work, man. So I, did, I didn't appreciate that. But So Spurgeon's a familiar name to a lot of people. But why don't you just give us a little uh, historical context? Give us the two-minute intro to the context for Spurgeon's life and ministry. Sure. Spurgeon was born in a small village in 1834, uh, and that was just a few years before the coronation of Queen Victoria. So he spends virtually all of his childhood in small villages between Essex and Cambridge. And so his upbringing was very much steeped in this kind of rural identity, which is interesting given that he's known for his preaching in London at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, which was the largest Protestant church in the world. He preached to thousands of people each week, and through his influence, he started a college for pastors, as well as two orphanages that would eventually house over 800 boys and girls. And he died comparatively young, even for back then, at 57, mm -hmm. but he remains one of the most influential evangelicals in global Christian history. That's a great summary. Thanks. So um, I noticed in your book, you point out that his conversion, when he first met the Lord Jesus, had a huge impact for his preaching for the rest of his life. So uh, tell us what happened and how that formed him as a preacher and the content of his preaching. Yeah, I think it's absolutely central to understanding his approach. So he's walking on a snowy morning as a teenager in 1850, and the weather is so bad that he decides to duck into this little Methodist chapel in Colchester rather than keep on walking outside any longer. And he walks into this little chapel, and he sees a small congregation and an itinerant preacher who's filling in for the usual minister. And Spurgeon doesn't portray a particularly flattering account of the sermon. This guy mm. isn't eloquent. He's not giving a particularly ordered or studious sermon. He's essentially riffing an evangelistic message from Isaiah 45, 22. So the text is, look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. 
Now, the preacher seems to have taken this to be a direct reference to Christ, and not just to Christ, but Christ on the cross. Hmm. So he's inviting sinners to look at Jesus on the cross, bleeding, dying, and taking on himself the sins of the world. Now, Spurgeon grew up in a Christian home. His father and his grandfather were both ministers. But it's in this tiny chapel when he's by himself on a side street in a small town that Spurgeon becomes absolutely convicted and he gives his life to Christ. And I think the sermon is formative for Spurgeon in a couple ways. Obviously, his style is considerably different. He gives these sort of long, eloquent sermons that we Mm. can read. Um, But they also, more often than not, will contain subtle and very bold references to Christ on the cross. And he's even more convicted that preachers should always preach with an aim to invite people to Christ. So I think that those two things become the building blocks of his approach to the Bible and especially his approach to preaching. Yeah, it's a great story how God used a snowstorm and just a very uneloquent preacher. I want to get back to that and just that whole thing about his focus. I think you call it, uh, what were the two words? Oh, crucicentrism and conversionism. Crucicentrism and conversionism. Yeah. Okay. So, but I want to talk about a woman named Mary King that you mentioned in this book. And I was really fascinated by that story. So tell us about Mary King. Mary King is a really interesting person. She worked as a cook at a boarding school that Spurgeon attended. And unfortunately, we actually don't really have very much information on her. We have sort of cryptic quotes from Spurgeon that almost kind of elevate her to Baptist sainthood, if that were a thing. (laughs) Now, he says that he learned more theology from her than he might have learned in several divinity degrees. That's pretty high Mm. praise. It's an interesting visual. You know, you can read the story in the autobiography. You have this precocious and eager young Spurgeon who's come to faith. He wants to throw himself into ministry, and he's swapping sort of theology shop talk in the kitchen of a boarding school. And I think it's true that we could also make a similar point regarding Spurgeon's mom and his aunt Anne. The women in Spurgeon's life all sort of model biblical Christianity for him, and they encourage him to further develop his own knowledge and his own ministerial practice. So it's just this really interesting thing that you have these really noteworthy women nurturing his spiritual and theological life. I was really moved by the humility of Spurgeon and the spiritual hunger, like, like a proverb says, you know, I mean, just a teachable spirit. He, he can learn from, from anybody. So you point out that you have read through the Spurgeon corpus, uh, the canon, um, and there's no mention to the exact quote, I take my text and make a beeline to the cross. But he basically did that, right? I mean, that's kind of how he preached. So uh, tell us how that quote, does actually reflect his approach to preaching. Yeah, absolutely. It's probably the most famous quote that Spurgeon never said. It was one of these things, I dug through his books, his magazine, I got clever and I started doing all these crafty Logos searches and word Uh variants and uh, careful archaeology type thing, (laughs) looking for where this statement came from. And I never found it, which is kind of a shame because it would have been a slam dunk for a chapter But nevertheless, I think you're right. It rings true because it is descriptive of how he approached preaching. So the title of the book, Tethered to the Cross, isn't talking about sharing mobile data plans. It's a quote (laughs) from Spurgeon 
Right. He's talking to his students and he says, I wish that your ministry and mine would be tied and tethered to the cross. So that's one quote where he does talk about this approach. And it's there's dozens of others I could have pulled out. So it's this idea of the cross and conversion being the twin lenses through which Spurgeon sees every text. I guess you could say, in short, the quote is apocryphal, but the sentiment behind it is accurate. Mm, that's great. And you, there's also this longer quote in uh, Spurgeon's book, The Soul Winner, in which he talks about an old minister who tells a young young preacher, I didn't like your sermon, you know, and the young <laughs> preacher says, why? Well, you didn't talk about Christ. You know, there was no Christ in your sermon. And the young guy goes, well, my text wasn't about Christ. And the old guy, the old preacher says, whenever I get a hold of a text, I say to myself, there is a road from here to Jesus Christ. And I mean to keep on his track till I get to him. So uh, that's probably another way of saying what you're saying. But that, tell us a little bit about, about that quote, how that also reflects Spurgeon. Yeah, that's one of the famous lines that people think of when they're talking about Spurgeon's approach, for better or worse. I don't mm-hmm. think it would pass muster in a lot of homiletics departments today. Uh-huh. But for Spurgeon, he's not being cheeky. This really was his approach. So for him, the message of the whole Bible was inextricably bound to lifting up the cross of Christ with an aim to see men and women committing their lives to him. And if that's what you believe the whole Bible is about, you can weave in redemptive themes into a sermon from a text that isn't explicitly dealing with the crucifixion or an overt gospel message. And that's what's, to me, really interesting here. Spurgeon preached from a wide range of texts and biblical genres, yet the majority of his sermons were there not only to inform and disciple those in his congregation who already knew Christ, but to introduce people to Jesus as well, to invite them to be transformed in this way. So would you, is there a, as a theologian, you know, yourself, is there a weakness to that approach in Spurgeon, would you say, or maybe a limit, just a limitation or anything, any critique where you or others would push back against that? Yeah, I think it's one of these things where, as a guide, it's helpful, but we don't want, we want to be careful that our guides are not becoming a straitjacket. So I think that we can use developments in biblical theology, in systematic and historical theology. We can look at, you know, different approaches to biblical interpretation and give a rich and nuanced sermon. But I do think that the gospel is saturating the Bible in ways that we might miss if we forget to look for it. I totally agree. I was really moved in the conclusion section of your book. You quote Spurgeon when he says, we ought to preach the law. We ought to thunder out the threatenings of God, but they must never be on the main topic. Christ, 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 if we would have men converted, Whatever I have not preached, I have preached Christ, and into whatever mistakes I have fallen, I have sought to point to his cross and say, behold, the way to God, you know? Mm. I mean, if I get to the end of my preaching career and somebody says that about me, you know, I I don't think I'm going to feel too bad about that. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Um, There's also a great line. There is a famous line that he did say that uh, he said something about that we need to open the door and the Bible is like defending a lion 
And he said, we need to open the door and let the lion out. He will take care of himself. Okay. So Spurgeon did say that, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So, and where do you see that in his preaching ministry? How did he sort of live that out as a preacher? Yeah. So, I mean, I think we can see it in a few places, but for me, what's really interesting is how Spurgeon deals with developments in biblical studies that occur through his lifetime. So the higher critical experiments and developments that were going on in the early half of the 19th century in Germany made their way to Britain in the second half of the 19th century. And so Spurgeon is alive during all of this. And in the book, I go to fairly great lengths in several chapters to look at Spurgeon alongside these developments mm. in British biblical studies. And what's interesting to me is what Spurgeon doesn't do. He doesn't retreat into kind of an isolationist camp mm. and avoid scholarship just because it's at odds with his theology. So, for example, he makes a commentary survey, yeah, uh, kind of like Don Carson and Tremper Longman's ones that we have now. Yes. He personally reviews over 1,400 commentaries from a really wide range of backgrounds. He occasionally brings in a bit of snark. I saw that. Talking about them. Yeah, some of them are pretty funny. But, you know, and he does this when he thinks a commentator is reaching beyond the bounds of orthodoxy. But more often than not, and particularly when he's behind the pulpit, he avoids getting dragged into debates over theological minutiae. He does this, I think, because he believes the main purpose of the Bible is to lead men and women to repentance mm -hmm. and into an increasingly deeper relationship with God. So these things are going on in the background around him, but he's not interested in this sort of list of defenses of the traditional interpretation of the Bible and these kind of things. And he actually goes after evangelicals when he thinks they've done it badly. Hmm. Now, for him, the Bible isn't something to be fended. It's something to be upheld and preached. Yeah. I was trying to look for that. There was a really funny, snarky line. Do you remember what I'm talking about in the book? He, he said something pretty funny. So he's, you know, he, uh, he compares people talking about trying to reconcile the age of the earth as the scientific community is talking about. Um, you know, there's all these endeavors to kind of reconcile the creation epic with developments in science and stuff like that. And there's just this point where he says, look, what you're building is a wooden scaffolding around an impregnable castle. Huh. Saying, when this, when your scaffolding falls down, don't think that the castle has been injured. It didn't need the defense in the first place. These kind of powerful images of the Bible and the reliability of the Bible and yeah, I think these things are just, he just has such a way with words as he's yes. describing them. Yes. I was also surprised that he, in some of his sermons, well, he, he really had what we might call a social conscience. You know, he, he cared for the poor. He criticized his own government. I think you call it a blend of social action, crucicentrism, and conversionism, although those last two were prominent. But he also had some social action in there. So how did all those fit together? I should start by saying those categories are not my inventions. I wish they were. Ah. Uh, they come directly from a, the book, the book that absolutely sets the stage for all evangelical church history that follows, and that's David Bebbington's Evangelicalism in Modern Britain. That said, it's absolutely true. Spurgeon 
is very much a social activist, and he has a significant influence on the Victorian world through his support for orphanages, ragged schools, hmm. and also help for adults in the form of almshouses and evening vocational classes. So he actually mobilizes his college lecturers, my predecessors, to teach basic reading and math skills to working class adults in the evening, which would give them some hope for social mobility to be able to read and do arithmetic and maybe be able to get a job that uh, was less dangerous. Now, Spurgeon's aims aren't unique here. These tenets that we're talking about, um, activism, crucicentrism, conversionism, these sorts of things, they're all factors that help us to understand Victorian evangelicals. And it's particularly helpful to remember, you know, there's no economic safety net in Victorian mm. Britain. There's no Medicare or NHS like we have today. And London is a particularly difficult place to live. The population pretty much doubles twice during the 19th century. And those who are at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder, they feel it the worst. But it's also worth saying, I don't think Spurgeon would have identified himself particularly as an activist. For him, mm. it's a small part of living out the larger gospel story in his own life. I don't think he would bifurcate that. For him, it's all part of one thing. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I, and I see how that all fit together in him. So tell us about his personal life of prayer and devotion. You know, how would you say his preaching flowed from his, I guess we might say his union in Christ or his abiding in Jesus or his devotional life, however we want to say it? Yeah, I think I'd describe this as sort of this total dependence on God that he had. Hmm. So he suffers from considerable pain throughout his life. He battles rheumatoid arthritis, gout. Hmm and a particularly bad kidney inflammation throughout significant portions of his adult life. And he also suffers from depression throughout much of his ministry. And there's, there's a great little book on this uh, Spurgeon mental health called Spurgeon Sorrows, which is kind of a really honest and helpful window into this facet of his life. I say these things not to emphasize that he overcame them. The depression stays with him throughout his whole life, and the yeah. kid problems were what killed him. I say these things because these adversities piled on top of the rest of the burdens that pastors face on a weekly basis were all things that he had no choice but to throw into the hands of God. Mm. So he acutely knows the struggles of the Christian life, and I think that's just as an aside why he's so enamored with Pilgrim's Progress. Ah. Um, there's a sense in which reliance on God and communication with him isn't an optional extra for Spurgeon. It's the only thing that keeps him going. I think that's probably what he would say. Well, Thomas, you know, after studying his, his life, and I know you're, you're, training, you're training pastors, right? Yeah. That's right, yeah. Yeah, so um, what would you say is the biggest or maybe, you know, one or two lessons preachers today can learn from the, the preaching ministry of C.H. Spurgeon? Yeah. Well, first, don't feel obliged to be Spurgeon. Huh. He was who he was. He had his yeah. own gifts. We have ours. 
in ministry and in everything else, comparison is often a road to disappointment and despair. I'd say be inspired and be challenged by his approach to the Bible. Read widely like he did. Preach plainly like he did. And don't forget the most important thing is preach Christ in him crucified. We can't avoid the gospel because it's not explicitly in a text, but we also shouldn't try to tack on an altar call to an otherwise unrelated sermon. Mm. Instead, I think we can recognize, like Spurgeon did, that the Bible is a book which is ultimately about reconciliation with God the Father through the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And we can step into that mission by proclaiming these ancient truths. So Spurgeon takes old truths and he presents them in accessible and engaging ways. And he never preached without sharing the good news. I think that's, at the end of the day, the reminder, a convicting reminder for every man or woman who wants to teach God's word. Yeah, that's, those are great lessons, Thomas. This is back to you. I want to just, uh, the, the name of the book is Tethered to the Cross, The Life and Preaching of C.H. Spurgeon by Dr. Thomas Brymeyer. And Thomas, you, our producer, Kelsey, says, let's have Thomas tell the story of selling all his things to move to England to get his PhD. So why don't you tell, help them get to know you a little bit as, as the author of this book. So that was kind of a fun story. So why don't you share that sure. real quick? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I, I finished up a master's program at Wheaton, and I did that just in the advent of the last financial mm. meltdown in America. And mm. I thought I'd just get a job, any job. And found myself working in construction. I did that for five years, and I was on the verge of maybe taking a promotion in that field, and it would have meant you know, a significant commitment to the company and these kind of things. And so I thought, boy, if I don't apply for a PhD program now, I probably never will. So I should just see if I could get into one, and when I don't, it'll be fine. I'll just go on yeah. my thing. Um, I had been teaching a bit of undergraduate courses online and these kind of things, just just trying to keep a foot in training folks for ministry however I could. And then I got in, and I thought, oh, boy, this is different. And with a lot of prayer and about three days' reflection, I accepted the offer. And next thing I knew, I was pretty much selling anything I owned that was worth money and uh, hopped on a plane and moved to Edinburgh. And it was a crazy journey. I got plugged into a church, helped with a church plant, met my wife, ended up teaching in London at Spurgeon's College. So it's just been a a bit of a whirlwind, but it's been an amazing set of opportunities that I could never have done on my own, but just ways in which God has uh, cleared the path for me in really cool ways. Yeah, that's really cool. Well, we're glad you you followed the Lord and, and obeyed his call. Because this is a really good book. Like I said, I really enjoyed it. We'll we'll give the last word to Spurgeon. So I, I circled this quote in your book and I put, wow, with an exclamation mark and two underlines under it. And Spurgeon says, if we do not make the Lord Jesus glorious, if we do not lift him high in the esteem of men, if we do not labor to make him King of kings and Lord of lords, we shall not have the Holy Spirit with us. Vain will be rhetoric. If our one design is not to magnify the Lord Jesus, we shall work alone and in vain. Yeah, that's a pretty good summary, right? I think so. Yeah, so you don't have to do it exactly like Spurgeon did it, 
or in his context or his social context or his personality. But man, I just, I just love that. And that's just like, I do, I want to esteem the, the Lordship of Jesus in the eyes of, of my hearers. So Thomas, thanks for your great book. And thanks for joining us on Monday Morning Preacher. Thanks very much, Matt. It was a pleasure. Matt Woodley with Monday Morning Preacher. Thanks for tuning in. Read the book, Tether to the Cross, The Life and Preaching of C.H. Spurgeon. Learn from a great master of the craft. 